Hello, K-Squid listeners. It's every other Sunday again. I'm Ronnie Lipschitz here in the studio with Brooke Wright, and you're listening to Sustainability Now, a bi-weekly K-Squid radio show focused on environment, sustainability, and social justice in the Monterey Bay region, California, and the world. Bees are in danger around the world. What can we do? What do bees do? And what can bees tell us about human society? Our guest today is Dr. Eve Bratman, an assistant professor of environmental studies at Franklin and Marshall College in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Bratman is author of Governing the Rainforest, Sustainable Development Politics in the Amazon. And she's currently writing a book entitled Pollination, A Journey into the Politics of Saving Bees and the Ethics of a Sustainable Future, which uses bees as a prism for seeing broader social and ecological phenomena and is premised upon revealing the ways that human society Thumping, fumblingly strives to protect and preserve their roles in our lives. Eve, welcome to Sustainability Now. Thanks. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So you have a lot of expertise about bees, and we'll get into that later and other things. But let's start with your recent focus on bees, which includes several publications. You recently co-authored an article about urban beekeeping. Could you talk a little bit about that? I'm happy to. Uh, first, I want to acknowledge my co-author, Doug Sponsler, who is an entomologist and uh, urban ecologist. So he and I collaborated, uh, having uh, worked together in Philadelphia with some urban beekeepers. Uh, Doug coming at it from the side of wanting to know more about what the bees were feeding off of in the urban landscape, and me having an interest in what the meanings were of urban beekeeping to to people living in the city and to the beekeepers themselves. So when we talk about urban beekeeping, uh, it can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people, right? For for Doug, obviously, it, it was all about pollination services, and and for for myself and and for others coming at uh, beekeeping from a more socio political lens, uh, urban beekeeping means. Uh, hands-on environmental engagements in places such as cities where we wouldn't normally expect to find people interacting with nature in in quite intimate and active ways. So what we do in this article is we try to unpack those different meanings of urban beekeeping and we draw on urban ecological theory to construct uh, basically three different archetypes of what urban beekeeping can look like. We talk about it as beekeeping in, of, and for the city. So with beekeeping in the city, basically it's kind of add bees to an urban environment and stir people keeping bees just basically for private reasons. Beekeeping of the city is about beekeeping that's conscious about the urban context, sometimes involving the semi-professionalization of beekeepers, um, selling local honey, for example, or local lip balms, as well as uh, creating local expert communities that are sharing knowledge with each other. And the last category that, that we articulate is called beekeeping for the city, which is about a shift in mindset where beekeeping is ultimately directed toward civic purposes beyond just the boundaries of the beekeeping community and really aiming toward a, a greater awareness raising and environmental engagement of, uh, of, of those beyond the, the narrowly defined beekeeping community. So. In this article, we're, we're trying to provoke a conversation both with policymakers and with people practicing beekeeping uh, in, in the forms of beekeeping associations and societies to try to encourage a conversation that, that really engages people in being self-reflective about their beekeeping practices 
and that allows for policymakers to uh, to be in conversation with beekeepers about how socio-ecological benefits could actually be maximized. How do you find people react to urban bees? It's a huge range. Uh, for the most part, there's a lot of enthusiasm. Uh, everybody wants to do something seemingly to save the bees and honeybees are a natural entry point for that. Uh, I'll talk more, I hope, in this interview about some of the problems with keeping honeybees, but um, but at a minimum, people are excited to try to do something and to be able to learn about the bees and see honeybee hives in action. Uh, there is, of course, always the uh, inevitable set of critiques that bees lead to more stings and people with bee sting allergies are more vulnerable and uh, beekeepers inescapably face a number of calls about um, wasps uh, as if they are swarms of honeybees when in fact they're just wasps doing their own thing. Um, so, so there's a lot of uh, work that beekeepers are always doing to educate the public and, and talk about bees with uh, broader communities. Do you go to schools with your bees? I mean, do you take them along, do anything like that? Or do you bring the students to the bees? Um, I have done a mix of both, but uh -huh. I originally actually uh, began as a beekeeper yeah. with, with beehives on the roof of the school where I was teaching. So uh, it, the, the bees both came to the students and the students came to the bees. <laughs> Backyard beekeeping in, in cities, you know, has exploded in popularity. I know that, that when I first heard about this, I was really sort of puzzled. But mm -hmm. is, is that... Is that enough to really make a dent in the, the problems that bees face? The short answer, Ronnie, is no. Um, but there's a lot of complex reasons as to why. So the, the first thing to clarify is that honeybees are actually not endangered. But the situation for all the rest of the 4,000 plus native bees in North America and the over 20,000 wild bees around the world is considerably more at risk. So uh, in scholarly journals, people who are, are studying uh, landscapes and, and ecosystem diversity are talking literally about the insect apocalypse. Yeah. Um, so that's not an exaggeration to talk about a, an actual crisis facing the world of pollinators and, and the world of invertebrates. And invertebrates are, are very understudied relative to birds and to mammals. So we've only actually cataloged about 0.8% of the diversity of invertebrates that's, that, are, that are out there. And the studies that we do have about the changes in the rates of their losses um, all lead to the equivalent of a, a sort of all hands on deck fire um, mm -hmm. uh, or a five alarm fire. Um, there's, there's an alert um, that, that it's, it's due to a range of factors, habitat loss, uh, pesticides, nutritional deficiencies, climate change, altering the phenology of when plants are blossoming, which then has mm -hmm. um, uh, add-on effects for pollinators, mm -hmm. such that um, the situation is, is quite dire for, for, most for most of the native bees in the world. And so beekeepers, honey beekeepers, are, are doing a lot to help ensure that our food system stays intact because honeybees are generalist pollinators. They can be trucked around the country to, to do a lot of the pollination work. But what the loss of all of these additional native pollinators means is 
potentially um, ecosystemic cascade effects where, where the health of ecosystems suffers and also where farmers experience a loss in productivity because mm. wild pollinators play um, a, a fundamental role in complementing the work of honeybees in a lot of different crops. So, so this can mean financial losses as well as, as losses in, in terms of our food supply. I mean, I would imagine that that these other species don't do very well in cities. Uh, you'd be surprised or, too well, that, okay. that actually surprise us. Yeah. Um, well, uh, for example, in my in my own uh, front yard in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, I established a native bee hotel, uh, quote unquote oh, wow. hotel, right? Simply uh, drilling a bunch of holes into old scrap wood, and mm -hmm. I set this up in my front yard and. I had the joy of watching different visitors coming and going. And um, by my count, there were at least five different types of species wow. that were taking up residence just in these simple wooden blocks. Um, uh -huh. And many of the native bees have very uh, fleeting um, lives. So at one point in late May, I saw uh, a, 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 just a ton of, uh, minor bees drilling little pencil sized holes in the exposed ground in my front yard. And there were about, I don't know, maybe a thousand bees of all these little tiny holes in the dirt. And I'm, I start, you know, looking at them and of course, getting onto my, my list and calling my, my bug scientist friends and asking them if they can help me identify the bees. So um, ultimately I identified them as Dunning's minor bees and they, they have a life cycle that's all of five weeks long. So it was, you know, quite intense, but only for a short amount of time. And um, and so long as a lawn has or or a a yard space that is ideally not a lawn um, has enough um, uh, habitat available for those bees uh, in terms of things that they can pollinate and places that they can make habitat in, such as uh, maybe a little loose soil then uh, the native bees can, can take up habitat in, in those spaces as well and, and thrive quite successfully. Urban areas actually have oftentimes a lot more diversity of plant life than in many of the suburban and, and rural areas where you've got you know, a monocrop of agriculture around and, and not a lot of plant diversity. I was going to ask about, about whether in that case, uh, native species are better for sustaining those, those bees than the kind of lawns and flowers, you know, that we tend to plant that are not native. Is that, or, or are they, are the, these other bee species fairly indiscriminate about, you know, where they go foraging? Um, it really depends on the bee, but honeybees are about as perfect of a generalist species as one can find. And many of the native bees are, are much more discriminatory in what mm -hmm. they choose to, to feed off of and pollinate. So um, in some cases, there will be only one or two plants that a native bee needs in order to survive and which it has co-evolved with. Um, for example, the Mojave Desert Poppy Bee. Um, so this, this it's, it's a bee that's not on the endangered species list, but it's, it's critically as suffering from from habitat losses and is, is likely to it's a candidate for being listed and um, there's there's only two types of poppy flowers that that it can pollinate and it's just been completely squeezed into uh, less than two percent of its native habitat range 
uh, given the, the pressures of urbanization and also ATVs and, and other threats. Yeah, I just, I wanted to ask you, so you're describing, you know, definitely habitat loss would be playing a big role in these mass extinctions of these native bees, but you also mentioned about climate change a little bit, and um, I just, I was just on a walk, and I don't know how familiar you are with Santa Cruz, but we have, you know, it's one of the places that monarchs come to, and a lot of people plant milkweed and try to be part of this solution for them. And I was walking and there was a caterpillar, a monarch caterpillar underfoot and I got him onto a piece of milkweed and then I saw a dead butterfly, dead monarch mm. minutes later. And I was just thinking, wow, it's the end of November and there's all these caterpillar monarchs, there's flying monarchs, there's like all this activity. And it was 78 degrees here yesterday, which is really not seasonal. So. I'm just curious, it just was like, I was thinking maybe a parallel situation to, to what degree are the, um, the sort of solutions that people are trying to come up with to support these insects? Are they based on an old reality or, you know, to what degree do we have to adjust how we're trying to support them um, based on the fact that we, the climate is changing? Uh, great question, Brooke. And, and the answer is that it's complicated. I think in large part, native plants are are certainly a part of the answer because of so much of the habitat loss situation. And it, there's still an outstanding question about to what extent um, all species, uh, plant and invertebrate alike, will be suffering in the face of uh, an ever you know, hotter uh, climate around, uh, around the world, you know, in some, in some places, obviously drier and in other places wetter than, than what those plants have been adapted to. Um, and I think it's, it's um, also an important thing to note that, um, so we may have to also look toward, um, toward other plant species as potential complements to, to offer um, a greater variety of nutrition when possible to, um, to the species that, that, that might be able to be saved. Um, so, you know, in, in the big picture, this evolutionary um, gamble that we're taking uh, with climate change uh, is, is basically that, you know, for the most part, we're going to be we're going to be losing the, the roulette game time and again. And uh, to the extent that we can plant a bit more to help at least some species have greater resilience in the face of those uh, changing um, blossoming periods and to provide more habitat, then the better off we'll be. Let's take a break right here. You're listening to KSQD 90.7 FM and ksquid.org streaming on the internet. Hello, everyone. You're listening to Sustainability Now on KSQD FM. I'm Ronnie Lipschitz in the studio with Brooke Wright. And our guest today is Dr. Eve Bratman an assistant professor of environmental studies at Franklin and Marshall Co College in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And she's writing a book about bees. And so we're talking today about bees. There's a writer named Emma Maris who has written a book called Rambunctious Garden. Uh, it's, it's called Planting in a Post-Wild World is the subtitle. And I, I love some of her ideas about um, allowing nature to, to come back in to our spaces. And I think my um, additional sort of complement to, to that concept is that beyond just 
planting, uh, what we need to also be doing is noticing more and, and noticing more uh, with a sense of curiosity and tolerance for the flying things around us uh, as, as an integral part of what it means to be living in this new post wild world. Um, and, and bringing bees back into that picture is an important way to begin, um, I think, developing a sensibility about the world around us that is that is from a position of um, perhaps friendship and curiosity and a will toward peacemaking rather than the will toward waging war on nature, which of course back in 1963 Rachel Carson talked about um, in, in terms of writing about uh, pesticides and the problems of DDT. And, you know, that idea of, of how humans have been waging a war on nature and trying to tame it and trying to organize it is all about the modern project and is somewhat antithetical to the idea of allowing for some wild spaces and allowing uh, for, for the, the logics of the natural world to take their course in perhaps unplanned and, and untamable ways. And so when we think about what it means to uh, end the war on nature, I, I think the first step is that, you know, we won't ever get to a peace treaty, but what we need is a different mindset, a different positionality. And, and I call that ecological rapprochement, uh, which I draw from international relations. Um, the concept of rapprochement is, you know, the thawing of antagonistic or hostile relations and was useful um, through, you know, diplomacy in the Cold War. And, and I think can also be useful when we start thinking about human relationships with uh, the more than human world. That is super interesting. And I'm, I'm curious, how would that apply um, to like the agricultural system? So locally here, we have a lot of farmland and I'm sure that that plays a significant role in the habitat loss and extinctions we're talking about. So if we were to sort of, it almost sounds like you're talking about like a rewilding <laughs> of some spaces. If we were to apply that um, in the food system, what, what are some, I don't know, some features of what that would look like? Well, it's interesting that uh, the food system, you know, comes up so much as the height of, you know, our, our, our modern ability to, uh, to have industrialized agriculture and to, you know, control every dimension of it. And yet, even in, um, big corporations like General Mills, there's a push for regenerative agriculture, which is very intentionally um, trying to cultivate uh, healthy soils and thinking more deeply about um, integration of a diversity of species into the, the growing matrix. And so I, I think this is starting to happen already through, through trends like regenerative agriculture, um, other farming techniques are simply allowing more hedgerows to grow such that that some of the border habitat around a given farm has more diversity. So even if you're you're not, you know, a card carrying, you know, organic permaculture, biodynamic, regenerative farmer, um, I, I think there are ways that agriculture can begin um, uh, rethinking some of the the fundamental logics of you know maximizing profit on every square inch up to the exact boundary of the field and once um once farmers start thinking a little bit more creatively um about weaning themselves off of the dependency on um 
buckets of fertilizer and buckets of pesticides and, and instead um, managing land in ways that allow for a little bit more diversity and, 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 you know, essentially giving your, giving your farm workers a break, farm workers in the human sense, as well as in the, the insect pollinator sense, right. um, the, 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 the benefits will, will be glaringly apparent to all and, and already are being, you know, talked about in, in scientific research and studies on agricultural productivity. Does that give you a feeling of optimism? Because that's for the bees, if even these giant players are looking at this, even not as card-carrying biodynamic <laughs> believers? <laughs> Overall, I am very, I'm, I'm very hopeful. I, I think, um, I'm always a little hesitant to talk about optimism. I kind of feel like optimism in the age of climate change is a little bit like, um, you know, putting one's head in the sand, but, um, but hopeful in the sense that, you know, there's work to be done and it can be done and, and is meaningful and, and might, might actually make a substantive change in how our world looks. Um, I'm certainly hopeful. And I, yeah. I think this is fundamentally a hopeful story that that I'm telling about the importance of pollinators and and people trying to um, to do something in their in a variety of different ways to think differently, to listen differently to the world around them, and um, and paradoxically, I, I think also that that the lesson here is not that we humans are going to be saving pollinators, but that, that the, the bees and, and pollinators more generally are actually here to, to help save us if only we step back a bit and start to listen to them. Well, let's talk about a little bit about your book, okay? I was wondering whether pollination is a play on words of some sort, or it's just, you know, a title that you, you pick because it, so many books have nation in the title. I do love puns and beekeepers irresistibly uh, gravitate to puns. So um, in a sense, pollination is of course, a, you know, a pun on pollination. Um, and it is also, <laughs> <laughs> you have to kind of say it, you know, pollination yeah, yeah, yeah. With, the, with the pause. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and the title is also, meant to get us thinking about the national context of these decisions as well mm -hmm. as the international dimensions mm -hmm. of, um, of, of a global predicament. And um, I start off the book actually telling a story of the mayor of a city in Costa Rica who talks with a hummingbird. The hummingbird visits this mayor. His name is uh, Mayor Edgar, Edgar Mora uh, Altamirano. And, and this hummingbird who the mayor has called Frankie, um, visits his patio almost every day. And, and one of the first things that Frankie the hummingbird said to the mayor was that he should sell his garage and tear down, uh, sorry, sell his car and tear down his garage. And the mayor's like, what? And, um, you know, hummingbirds don't stick around long, right? You have to sort of be patient. And, and so over time they develop this 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 relationship and the mayor understands that Frankie is is um, is a presence in the city that that is trying to convey on a policy on, on a to, to convey messages that that can really actually deeply inform policy so so this mayor takes the story 
of uh, this conversation from Frankie does actually sell off his car and tear down his garage and creates more habitat and then begins structuring urban policy in Curitabat, the city that's just outside of San Jose, uh, toward giving pollinators citizenship and uh. thinking about the urban design of the city through the experience of the native bee and through the experience of a raindrop as it percolates through the soil and through uh, the experience of an earthworm as it moves through the soil and and so on and so forth right but what they're doing is really reorienting um, their sensibilities and their metrics around the natural environment in ways that that challenge our notions of how one is supposed to uh, utilize the city and and move through through space and and part of these lessons that um, the mayor learned um, was about trying to create more habitat as a way of also de-stressing the urban environment for the people that live there. And that that messaging of, oh, if you just, you know, shut down those engines for, you know, a little bit or make the garden a little bit more peaceful, then nature will come back in and feel a little bit more able to um, to be bountiful and, and flourish there. The, the the coda of that story is that he didn't get voted out of office. He actually won re-election and then became for a time Costa Rica's minister of education. So <laughs> listening to hummingbirds can actually get you promoted. And I, I think there's a big lesson there for all of us. You're listening to KSQD 90.7 FM and ksquid.org streaming on the internet. Hello, Casequid listeners. You're listening to Sustainability Now. I'm Ronnie Lipschitz here in the studio with Brooke Wright. Our guest today is Dr. Eve Bratman from the uh, from Lancaster University. No, sorry, Franklin and Marshall College, College in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I'm sure there's a Lancaster University somewhere, probably in England. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, she's writing a book about bees. And we were just talking about a mayor in Costa Rica who has a, a talks to a hummingbird. And I, I, you also mentioned something about seeing the environment, you know, as a bee or through the eyes of it. What was it? What was your phrase? And I'm sort of wondering, how do you do that? Well, uh, taking a bee's eye view on the world doesn't necessarily mean um, seeing it in less color. I, I'll start with that <laughs> anecdote, right? Um, bees don't see white; they see ultra. They see our white as ultraviolet, and um, oh. I, I think that part of um, using bees as a prism for seeing our larger ecological crises is, is really thinking about how they are boundary crossers between different sorts of habitats um, and, and that they don't see property lines and fence lines um, in, the, in nearly the same ways as we humans tend to. And so when when we think about what does it take for a bee to flourish, um, it's essentially uh, water sources, uh, stable climate, and abundant habitat for nutrition as 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 well as for um, habitation. And uh, and uh, you know, of course, reducing the number of of additional predators would would be nice too, right? A few a few less, uh, you know, uh, bald faced hornets and and so on. Yeah. Um, but, but a, a bee's eye view on the world is really meant to explore um, and, and help readers understand what a, a deeper level of uh, seeing the environment and, and cooperating with the environment would look like. Um, 
in, insofar as as bees are our natural boundary crossers, I think they really help us to to understand what happens uh, when we think between systems and when we think in interdisciplinary ways about uh, the, the challenges that are, are facing our world. So I try to do that both by by helping readers understand what's going on with pesticides, as well as what's going on with almond pollination, as well as what's going on with the international honey trade. So there's a lot of different levels there to be explored. You're right. You're right that, that uh, bees can be uh, a prism for seeing broader social and ecological phenomena. I think you may have already said that. And so I'm wondering, you know, how do you make that connection? You talked about rapprochement, um, but that, of course, is a human concept, I suppose, diplomatic concept, right? What do the bees tell you? You know, I have interviewed a lot of people who listen to bees very deeply, right? Who, who meditate in front of hives, who uh, I told the story of the mayor who listens to his yeah. hummingbird friend. Um, and I myself am a beekeeper and I'm listening all the time for uh, the messages from the hive, like, are the bees upset? Am I moving too fast? Should I not have uh, um, used quite as much smoke when I was working with the bees and so on? But on, on a much deeper level, um, the, the ways in which bees have helped me to see the world differently are all about um, recognizing in a more close way what's blossoming, what's blossoming, that blossoming, whoo, excuse me, um, uh, what's blossoming, what is my neighbor doing on their lawn that might also affect uh, my hives. Uh, what is the city doing as far as policies are concerned regarding protection of pollinators, creation of habitat, whether that's through tree plantings or um, lawn ordinances that mandate mowing? And, and all of that um, becomes uh, wrapped up in, in thinking in a, um, a more interdisciplinary and holistic way about the the conditions of the world around us right beyond the hive what are the bees picking up it, as they pollinate in uh in the rest of um the the area around us and what can be done um even as simply as uh a, you know putting in a native bee hotel or planting some native plants that might draw something new into one's garden that you haven't seen before and um so i think bees are helpful in that way for for giving us um, you know, a, a singular point of focus, but through which we can see a lot of other issues beginning to play out. Can you expand on what those other issues might be? Sure. My book talks um, a bit about um, sacred approaches to beekeeping and to thinking about human natural relations. Uh, I also look at, uh, the, I mentioned the, the honey business. Um, honey is a commodity that has a lot of fraud in it and uh, and some of the biggest trade busts in, in US history have happened um, over essentially honey laundering or um, trans shipment of honey and um, falsified labels of country of origin um, happening in, in the US honey market. So I look at that um, and and have interviewed people involved in um, trying to verify, you know, where our food is coming from, um, where our honey is coming from in particular. Um, they also, of course, help us think through agricultural questions. So um, 
one of my chapters deals with almond pollination um, and and modern agriculture and other chapters deal in uh, smaller scale urban beekeeping and what an individual might do within the context of you know a very different um, uh, social and ecological reality to 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 do the work of of protecting bees. Um, I uh, I'm also really interested in in a deep way, uh, not you know not just in honeybees, but in um, the the laws and regulations surrounding pesticides and and the management of agriculture. So um, I, I'm doing some writing and thinking about a comparison of the U.S. and the European Union when it comes to neonicotinoid pesticides, which is the world's most widely used class of pesticides, and which the EU um, effectively has banned. Um, in the past few years, and uh, which the U.S. has has most discernedly not uh, banned or, or even slowed down in using in recent years, um, and uh, I think there's uh, you know some really interesting things to be said as well about um, the role of invasive species and um, and um, and pests as they interface with um, our our changing ecological realities. And so there's there's also a chapter that talks about um, invasives and, and invasive plants, of course, are a component of that, but so are invasive path, uh, pests that are affecting honeybee species. Yeah, I, I was sort of thinking that you were you were looking at the, the bee, co bee colonies and hives, right, as some kind of social model for human beings right and that, this is what i was trying to draw out and it doesn't sound like ah, that's see. quite right i i you know humans have anthropomorphized bees throughout recorded history um and read all kinds of behaviors meanings and lessons from their behaviors right and i was thinking of bernard mandeville's fable of the bees which i haven't read but which i see has you know was put sort of forth as a model of human society uh, and so I was sort of trying to draw you out whether whether you see that anything there. I'm glad you ask because it it is so tempting to want to, uh, you know, draw lessons of bounteous cooperation leading to you know harmonious coexistence um, when we look at uh, you know a honey beehive, but. But I think it's really critically important to resist that temptation to read too much into them. I mean, uh, after all, a honeybee society is a monarchy and the the queen must inevitably die. And um, and there <laughs> there's a lot of gender imbalance in a honeybee hive. Um, all the male bees are killed off, you know, at the end of a season. And uh, and we wouldn't want to. Um, to, to just kind of selectively pick and choose, uh, you know, the lessons that we take from, from bees. And so I, I think there's a real limit to which it's useful to, um, to draw metaphor uh, in, a, in a direct way from, from beehives into, into our own lives. And instead I'd rather um, really focus the, or anchor the discussion in, um, you know, what, in the question of what we can learn from bees by trying to relate to them rather than trying to impose our own narratives of what we want, you know, seeing what we want to see onto them. Well, you know, I mean, of, of course, the Mandeville's fable, right, emerged at a particular point in English history. I think it was, it was English history, 
where as capitalism was emerging. I mean, it's kind of curious, right? Because I was thinking of bees as a kind of class-ridden communist society. <laughs> you know, I did. I forgot about the monarchy part. Right? <laughs> But but again, you know, or or something that H.G. Wells might have written about, uh, you know, in the yeah. time machine, something like that. Um, you, you talk about bees and international relations, right? You've written about that. So, you know, maybe we can go back to this, the concept of, of rapprochement and maybe you can expand a little bit about on that and and whether there's other there are other features of, of international relations that you you know, with which you make connections. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the pieces of research that I've done and, and which I'll I talk about in, in my book manuscript is uh, about the resurgence of stingless beekeeping in the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. And among the Mayan communities in the Yucatan, um, stingless bees, this, this particular species called Mel Melipona beachy, uh, was uh, long considered to be sacred. There's there's even a, a Melipona god um, depicted in in Mayan architecture, um, you know, coming down from the heavens and and being a sort of translator of the spiritual world back to the the grounded world of the present. And um, Melipona bees were at the brink of extinction back in 2005. Um, Scientists were, you know, studying their population and realizing that if the current rates of, of decline of the population continued, there would be none of these bees left at all. And um, the, the practice had resurged, uh, um, um, became reinvigorated and, and experienced a resurgence um, thanks to conservationists really doing um, an effective job of, of marrying modern scientific practice with indigenous ways of um, knowing and relating to each other. Um, so, uh, bee researchers essentially partnered with, um, with, with local, ex, you know, ex, uh, people who essentially functioned as agricultural extension agents and who repopularized a practice that had long been considered, you know, too old fashioned and like, oh, that's something that my grandparents did. Um, you know, why would I want to do that? And, and essentially they created all these really dynamic cooperatives of young people and students, um, partnering with the with uh, their grandparents' generation, um, doing classes in Mayan language um, and exposing people to the exciting ways in which this, this particular bee had long been a part of their history and, um, and was important, not just for the honey and not just because it's a really cool bee, um, but, but also really um, playing a vital role in, in the protection of their culture. And, um, and I, I think there's some really deep lessons there for international relations scholars as we think about um, translating, you know, scientific and sort of expert community knowledge into uh, people's everyday lives and making those knowledge systems um, adapted and contextualized and relevant for, for people's um, realities on the ground. Yeah, I mean, in a way, regenerative agriculture tries to do exactly that, right, to bring back the the closed cycle as much as possible, um, but but you know potentially it's more costly and, and maybe more less efficient. I don't know exactly, um, which generates resistance here. But um, but the 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 fact that that it was extension agents that sort of revived this particular practice were these local extension agents. Were they? I mean, yeah, they were all locals. 
um, they were they were all essentially um, uh, you know young people who already had community ties and mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. Uh, who were working you know outside of the sand and sun resort context of you know urban Cancun, but really going yeah. you know back into the small towns and, and villages and, and pueblos, um, and and uh, in many cases you know they're uh, they're they're adopting a sort of plurality of approaches where there's the old fashioned, they're called hobones, they're log hives. And those are side by side with um, square or rectangular um, melipona beehives. And where people are, um, I I saw cases of honeybee keepers who also had their little stingless bee meliponario side by side with, or, you know, sort of nearby. Mm -hmm. And where they're keeping the stingless bees um, in part for the the incredible value of the the stingless bee honey, but also um, creating little um, boxes for for hives of solitary orchid bees, um, and also picking up wild hives of bees to you know to host and protect um, when they go for walks in the nearby forest, and mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. all of that was indicative to me of um, something that is taking place side by side sometimes with with with. Uh, you know, the capitalist systems of honey production that that we see taking place there and also having a totally different operating logic, one in which valuing the diversity of um, of, of many different bee species in this case um, exists kind of for its own sake and and for a, a cultural connection and also just where there's there's a people were, you know, just clearly passionate and exuberant about the different species that that they were hosting and the the wondrousness of the the way that all these different types of bees um manage their manage their you know internal lives (laughs) this is ksqd 90.7 fm and ksquid.org streaming on the internet good afternoon you're listening to sustainability now i'm ronnie lipschitz with Brooke Wright here in the K-Squid studio. Actually, we're not in the K-Squid studio this week. Um, And our guest today is Dr. Eve Bratman, who works with and writes about all kinds of bees. And we've just been talking about bees, uh, the restoration of old beekeeping practices in the Yucatan. Uh, do, Do you see anything like that emerging in the global north then? There are some really interesting things taking place in uh, in North America and Canada. Yeah, Do you need to pause? No, no, go on, go on. Go on. Okay, um, with uh, with with people um, basically looking to um, native ble- native bees like blue orchard bees uh, for for use in pollination, as well as um, for for at home uh you know playing host to uh to bees with with the rise of native bee hotels there are a number of different um facebook groups that i'm a part of and and you know instagram people that i that i follow around native beekeeping and or or it's not even really beekeeping right but but um native bee watching and and uh photography and and hosting as much as possible uh to create uh more habitat for those for those native bees and um and i think those are some of the most exciting new currents in in the world of of beekeeping in in the global north um there's also some some wonderful initiatives like uh the xerces society uh, has a program called Bee City USA, 
where um, where community is built around protecting pollinators and where um, it's not just you know like-minded people getting together to talk about bees but actually to to also um, plant pollinator habitat and advocate for urban policies that are in support of of pollinators and um, they're understanding pollinators and, and bees far more broadly than than merely honeybees um, but but rather in in a broader ecological context so in Santa Fe, for example. Uh, there's a there's a recent program uh, run by the Xerces Society and and uh, with Bee City USA of of planting um, more habitat at at different points, essentially creating biodiversity corridors for native pollinators uh, at locations throughout the city, and where um, participants in the program essentially get a, a you know a habitat kit of more than 20 plants that they then can can um, can put into these spaces that have been targeted as being essential to rebuilding the ecosystem um, or, or at least providing a little bit of contiguous habitat so that uh, native pollinators have have more of a chance to survive and thrive so i think those are some of the more inspirational examples of of things that I'm seeing um, in this context that you know get people really excited. I'll also give a shout out to a recent film that came out on uh, PBS. It's um, called um, "My Garden of a Thousand Bees," and I'll, I'll send you the link. Um, but yeah. it's uh, made by a, a British wildlife filmmaker who, during the pandemic, um, the sort of premise is that he couldn't go out to travel. And so instead he turns his cameras to his own backyard and starts documenting the native bees um, and, and their lives uh, there in, in his own backyard. And it's beautifully done, incredibly filmed, and, um, and makes this case, I think, quite compellingly about the, the fascinating worlds of native bees that are taking place, you know, literally uh, in our own backyards and, and right underneath our feet oftentimes without um, a certain cognizance of it. And I think stories like that, and this is in a you know British guy's backyard, I forget the city, um, but but I think it's messaging like that that's coming across um, in the global north that's, that's also giving um, greater momentum and consciousness, awareness raising to, to these issues. Are there, um, of all the, you've described some really great examples of some things that, dare I say, give you a little bit of optimism, <laughs> perhaps, <laughs> without putting your head in the sand. Um, but are there, in terms of, okay, so we're, we're in this area, like I said, where there's some ag, it's also urban, we're in this Monterey Bay region. Are there like maybe two or three top policies or approaches that you feel like if we had, you know, we were able to bend the ear of local electeds, like this would be the thing that we should try to get going if we want to really have an impact on the native bees. Um, great question. And without knowing too much about your local context and state preemption laws, I'm, I'm hesitant to offer some of the more ambitious um, policy options like, uh, you know, trying to institute a pesticide ban, for example. Um, which some parts of, of the country have done, but, um, but are often hindered by state preemption laws uh, okay. that, that prohibit that sort of local actions. And but do you mean like, um, oh, sorry, just on that, do you mean like specifically those types of pesticides you were talking about earlier or is it? Neonicotinoid, yeah, no, neonicotinoid pesticides especially are the target of, of many of those um, policy asks. And, okay. um, 
the group beyond pesticides and um, uh, certainly the Xerces Society are tremendous resources for thinking in um, strategic ways um, about about policy asks. And um, another thing that I would generally recommend is uh, to take a deep dive into the, the city's zoning ordinances and look to see if there is a, um, a recommendation on the books that, uh, that essentially mandates that lawns uh, be, be planted or that they, they can be no taller than say uh, six inches. Um, because it's sometimes ordinances like that that tend to um, subtly incentivize people um, being really uncreative with how they use their their lawns and um, what we need is, of course, a, a sort of a different aesthetic appreciation uh, for uh, for how how we can imagine the, you know, the new ideal of the American front lawn um, and backyard for that matter. And, um, think, and in addition, our... there's oh, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, let me just also say. Um, I think there's a lot of important wiggle room um, when it comes to how we think about our roads and a lot of headway is being made through federal policies about um, uh, low mow and um, and replanting along highway corridors and much of that can also increasingly be done in uh, spaces that are uh, essentially under municipal management. Um, uh, plantings and boulevards and, and so on that, you know, ultimately are just a, a cost burden on a city if they're having to mow it and which instead could easily become uh, more meadow like in their habitat. Yeah, I was just thinking that our uh, tendencies toward drought here and the love of the monarch have already helped change that aesthetic appreciation you're talking about. But those are those are really helpful examples. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Eve, I'm afraid we're out of time. It's been a fascinating uh, discussion. And uh, I, I, if people want to learn more about, about Eve's work, you can go and look up her website. So thank you very much. My website is evebratman.com. That's E-V-E-B-R-A-T-M-A-N.com. Thank you, thank you for hosting me, Brooke and, and Ronnie. As a reminder, shows from the 5 to 6 p.m. Sunday slot are rebroadcast the following Tuesday mornings from 6 to 7 a.m. If you'd like to listen to previous shows, you can find them at ksqd.org slash sustainability now and Spotify, Google Podcasts and Pocket Casts, among other podcast sites. Thanks for listening and thanks to all the staff and volunteers who make K-Squid your community radio station, including Emily Dunham, who was engineer for this show. Until next every other Sunday, sustainability now.